Good morning. So good to be able to gather together to worship our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And what we're going to do this morning now, as we continue in our worship, is to turn in our Bibles to Psalm 119. As you're turning to Psalm 119, what you and I are seeing right away is that once again, we see for the third time throughout the Psalms, that there's a coupling between what we might call a messianic psalm and a Torah psalm. You see that in Psalms 1 and 2. You see it again in Psalm 18 and 19. And now for the third time, 118 and 119, these psalms are combined together so that you can see how Scripture and Savior are meant to be understood in conjunction with one another. Now, what's particular about this psalm is that it's 176 verses in length, longest of the psalms, and it is arranged alphabetically. In other words, every eight verses sectioned off, a new Hebrew letter begins to develop that next section, arranged according to the Hebrew alphabet. It's meant for memorization. And for the Jews in particular, who were living in, let's say, in Babylon, they were living in exile. Well, they no longer had the temple, but they did have Torah. And the Torah was the means by which they continued to be able to seek out God, search his, the wealth of his, his truth that's found here in the scriptures. And what I want to do with you this morning is to look at just one of those sections. We're turning to Psalm 119, and we're going to be exploring verse 97 through 104. And as you're turning there, what you're going to notice right away is that this particular uh, psalm is introduced through this section by the Hebrew word mem, anglicized off to your left, and there's the Hebrew letter off to your right. And so this is how the people, the Israelites, were meant to be able to understand section by section how these verses were meant to be applied to modern day life. Now again, they're living in exile. They got to grapple with the promises of God. How does God's truth relate to the times in which they live? And now we're going to pick it up, if you would, in Psalm 119. I'll begin reading in verse 97, take it down through 104. You can almost feel the emotion, the exhale. Oh, how I love your law. It is meditation, my meditation, all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you've taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste. 
sweeter than honey to my mouth. And through your precepts I get understanding, and therefore I hate every false way. And you'll notice how the psalmist now brilliantly once again bookends this section because he begins with the word love, doesn't he? Ends with the word hate, doesn't he? Pulls it together and says, this is what I love, this is what I hate, and balances it in such a way that you're able to see just how this relates to modern day life. And so for those that were living in exile and no longer had the opportunity to enter into the temple, they had the Torah, which was able to enter into their hearts. Let's look to our Lord in prayer. And so, Father, what we want to do now is to explore your word together. You've arranged this in such a way for us to be able to ponder the significance, the depth, the breadth of it all. And we, we embrace what was written to Timothy, that all scriptures inspired by God profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. The man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And we're awed by the fact that Timothy only had the Older Testament, of which these words that Paul penned were summarized. And so, Father, we have the privilege with all 66 books of the Bible now to drink deeply from this well, to take in the sum total of revelation, and to be able to seize the idea of timeless truths and relate them in such timely ways. These moments are important. Warm these hearts. Engage these minds and shape these wills. As again, our Father, we've come here, we've come here to see Jesus, Him only. We're praying these things again now in, in Jesus' name. Amen. He's with the Lord now. Stuart Briscoe recalled a time, this outstanding pastor, Recalled a time when he was uh, doing some work on a particular biblical passage on an airplane, Bible open in front of him. When a, a flight attendant approached him, she recognized him, and uh, she said, Mr. Briscoe, you know, for years the Bible was a, a dead book to me. But then something happened. I just can't explain it. But now, I can't get enough of it. I devour it. And that extraordinarily wise Englishman leaned forward and said, I know what happened. Have you ever read a book that was boring and then one day one day, you met the author. And afterward, you picked up the same book and said, I know who wrote this. And it became the most exciting book in the world to you. 
Yes, she said. That's what's happened to me. I met the author. Now, what we have to bear in mind is that the Bible is meant to allow us to know the author, to draw close to the author, that behind the story stands the storyteller. And he's got this extraordinary story that he wants to unpack for you and unpack for me to be able to take it and apply it to the story of our lives as well. And so what I want to do is to now take this Hebrew letter, Mem. Again, the Israelites in exile, they would teach their children, the grandchildren, and so on, section by section, eight verses at a time. They're up to Mem, probably one of my two or three favorite portions of Psalm 119. And what I want to do is to draw out what I consider to be four significant observations found in these eight verses that I think relate to the journey on which we are walking. And the first comes out of verse 97. And I'm going to phrase it like this. That as you and I, as we consider the importance of knowing God's word, begin here with me and note the meditation here that's being that's being described because the psalmist now, we don't know his name, but the psalmist, so inspired by God, it's almost as if emotionally now, he with an extraordinary exhale says, oh, you almost pause at that point. You want to be able to enter into his experience. What is it about his intake that now produces the outtake of it all? Well, the input's going to shape the output. He's going to speak autobiographically. But what he now wants to say to you and to me, after developing the messianic Psalm 118, to couple the savior of that section with the the scriptures of Psalm 119, how I love your Torah. He doesn't merely say, I, I, I'm aware of your Torah, I'm familiar with your Torah, I love your Torah. And then what gets my attention, does he get yours as well? Is that when he uses the word law here, immediately the Jewish population would say, I know what he's talking about. Because Torah, you see, law, applies to the first five books of the Old Testament. And so those people in exile now who lack opportunity to enter into the temple are allowing with hearts wide open for Torah to enter into their lives in the way in which the scripture enters into ours. Torah. Now, what we have to bear and understand is that that word, oh, how I love in the Hebrew, your Torah, it comes from the verb to point. In other words, it's meant to give you direction on the, on the path that you're on. It's meant to provide guidance on the journey that you take. <coughs> it's not merely a, a set of requirements. 
much more than that. It's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So now, now, what you and I are doing at this point, we're saying, okay, I'm going to view myself as in exile. I might feel disconnected, detached from my home turf. I, I need a Torah moment. Let me take Genesis through Deuteronomy alone and allow myself to be drawn into the presence of the storyteller who's got a story for me about the plan of salvation through Christ. I say, okay. So there, you can almost see now, as he, after saying, oh, how I love your law, your Torah, he begins with Genesis. And what do we draw out from Genesis? In the opening chapters, we're introduced to the extraordinary description of the creator in relationship to the creation. And there, you mark it by one particular word, power. Here is the power of God being displayed. And once the power of God is being displayed, you can imagine now that people in exile are saying, we've been displaced from our homeland. We have been displaced from our homes. But God is all-powerful, and he can do something of significance with regard to my current situation. Which is true for you, and it's true for us as a whole. And then he inches out as he continues on in his study of Genesis. And he gets to that remarkable chapter of chapter 3. And there, I would say, you couple the word power with the word promise. And in Genesis chapter 3, there you have it. Here is this clash taking place in the Garden of Eden. God breaks into the evil one's strategies. What does he say? I'll put enmity in between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. What's he talking about? Jesus. And now you've taken the power of the first chapters and coupled it with the promise of the following chapters. And now you're watching how this promise gets unpacked generation by generation by generation. You make your way onward up to, say, Genesis 12. And God is saying to Abram and regarding his descendants, including Jesus, I'm going to make you a blessing to the nation. And you move from Abram to Isaac to Jacob and onward to Judah, where you're going to find that this is the one, that particular tribe, from which Messiah is going to come. And now here's the psalmist, and he's drinking up. No wonder he's saying, I love your, I love your Torah. And he then moves into Exodus. And the book of Exodus, he's pondering now the story of redemption, the Israelites have been exiled from their land, their home turf, and find themselves in a foreign setting in Egypt. You ever felt that way? I've been so displaced. What the psalmist is now doing at this moment, you see, 
is he's saying to all those who feel so displaced in this world, is that just as the Israelites felt displaced by the Babylonians, and they're held for 70 years in the grip of the Babylonian Empire, so were the Israelites in a prior era held in the grip of Pharaoh and the Egyptians. You see how this is relevant? You can almost feel him exhaling as he's now saying, oh, how I love this stuff. Because as I move from Genesis to Exodus, I see the relevance of it all. He's speaking to just where I'm at. I'm in exile now. They were in exile then, but God did something of significance. God broke in, and there was redemption there. The shed blood of a lamb applied to the doorpost, pointing us onward to the shed blood of that Messiah still to come, the ultimate lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. But you're not done yet, are you? Because... From Genesis through Exodus, this one who is saying, oh, how I love your law. He's up to Leviticus. And now he's saying, I combine moral law with ceremonial law, such as the sacrificial system that had an expiration date attached to it, to civil law, such as the way in which the entire judicial uh, structures were to be established in the land of Israel, and then he makes his way into Numbers. And he gets into Numbers. He says, oh, how I love your law. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. And there was rebellion out in the wilderness. And what does God do? And he says, okay, you rebellious Jews, I'm going to use a Gentile to talk about your Messiah. And so in Numbers chapters 22 through 24, here is one named Balaam who prophesies that there is one, a star, that will be shining brightly in the sky for them to embrace this ultimate star of David that we know when the wise men followed that star to Bethlehem. And it took a Gentile to be able to inform us in the Old Testament of that. And it took Gentiles, wise men, to come into Jerusalem to ask, where is this one born king of the Jews? And you can just sense how this one now who's penning these thoughts is saying, oh, how I... I love your law to make your way up to Deuteronomy, which talks about the inheritance of the land and rest in the land. And he's so far from the land, the promised land of God, but you see, God's in control. And even though you might feel displaced at a particular moment in your life, when you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you found your place. You've got an eternal zip code that is etched right into your soul. You belong to him, you see. And he's saying, oh, how I love your Torah. And you get all that, just say, out of the first five books of the Old Testament. But then he adds, hmm, it's my meditation. It's my meditation all the day. Eleanor Schmidt writes, when my physician had recommended surgery, referred me to a specialist, a gifted surgeon. Arriving early for my initial appointment, I found the door unlocked and this young surgeon deeply engrossed in reading behind a receptionist's desk. 
when I didn't, he didn't hear me come in, I, well, I cleared my throat and startled. He closed the book, which I recognized was, was the Bible. And so I asked, does reading the Bible help you before or after an operation? She writes, my fears were dispelled by his one word answer. During. Throughout the journey of life, God meets you on the journey during, not just before, not just after. He gets right smack in the middle of your during. You say, I'm with you. You see, the exiled ones lacked temple, but they didn't lack Torah. And if they couldn't have the externals of the temple, they could have the internal dimension of Torah being applied to their hearts. Are you doing that? That even when you feel so exiled, so displaced, here you've got the zip code of eternity impressed upon where you belong. You found a place. It's with, it's with Jesus. Oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all the day. Well, here's some students that are, that are making this their meditation all the day. Yeah, look at them. Um, hand over eyes. Uh, he's got the Hebrew down below. Right behind him, hand over eyes. Another one, hand over They look like a collective migraine, if you ask me. <laughs> but having had to study the Hebrew as well, I can, I can relate to what they're going through, to be honest with you. Yeah. You see. But then God wants you to internalize this. Why he's... He's walking on the road of Emmaus. And then after teaching the followers of Christ, he, he leaves them and they look at one another and say, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And all they had was the Old Testament and that's what he was referring to. And he was finding Christ in the Old Testament and relating it to the New Testament times in which they lived. You say you take the sum total of the 66 books and you go, you go deep. And now you're joining me and saying, oh, how I love your law, your Torah. It's my meditation. I'm reflecting upon it. I, I am deep in it. And it's all the day. And he said, Gary, I'm, round, I'm ready for round two. Okay, good. Because now in verses 98 through 100, as we consider the importance of knowing God's word, not only are we observing here the meditation being described in 97, but next the comparisons being made in 98 through 100. What I want you to be able to see at this moment, would you be able to pick them out for me, with me? There are three significant comparisons. 
and that the psalmist is now making to these people that feel so extraordinarily exiled by the challenges, the difficulties of life. Each comparison has something to say to you, something to say to me. Notice how it unfolds. He says, your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. Temple wasn't with them. Torah was with them. They were removed from where the temple was, but they're not removed from what the Torah offers. And they're internalizing it. In the process of doing so, they look around at their enemies. Now, this is the time in which Ezekiel and Daniel would have been incarcerated in the land of Babylon. This would be the time, the story of Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. And there is a, another in the fire standing with them, you see. And there you see when you're invested in the word, you're investing simultaneously in the one who is the word. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God. And the word was God. And now they could look around at those that had taken them away from their homeland. And they can look at these individuals through a different lens because now they've got a greater sense of wisdom than what the Babylonian religions and forms of idolatry could possibly ever offer. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies. And so then they were unwilling to eat what the Babylonians had to offer them because they wanted to stay kosher and in the process provoke the attention of those around them with regard to who is it that seems to have upper hand over all things, even in the land of Babylon, even when such people are displaced from home. But you're not done with that one. Because not only do you look at this matter of uh, wiser than my enemies, who based their wisdom upon their military encounters. But furthermore, he goes on to say, I have more understanding than all my teachers. And if the Babylonians were focused upon their encounters, well, the teachers were focused upon their explanations as to why things are the way things are. And now what we find is that he goes supernatural. He rises above the naturalism and all the philosophies of the day and age and was able to say, for your testimonies are my meditation. But he's not done. A third comparison. You're up to 100. I understand more than the aged. For you see, it's one thing to grow old it's another thing to grow up. And it's very possible to grow old and not grow up. And what he's saying is that when you are investing in God's word, year by year as you grow older, you're growing up. You're becoming wiser as you keep the precepts. And through it all with these comparisons, then you will find in this third is that he finds wisdom not in the experience of the age, but rather, if you will, in the exposition of God's truth. Andrea Wolf understands that. 
on staff with a particular mission agency in North Carolina tells the following story in a particular Christmas newsletter. It was the 1930s. Joseph Stalin, excuse me, Stalin, offered a, a purge of all Bibles, all believers. And in Stavropol, Russia, this order was carried out with a vengeance. Thousands of Bibles were confiscated. Multitudes of believers sent to the gulags, prison camps, where most died for being, quote, unquote, enemies of the state. But the mission sent a team to Stavropol. The city's history wasn't known at that time, but when the team was having difficulty getting Bibles shipped from Moscow, someone mentioned the existence of a warehouse outside of town where these confiscated Bibles had been stored since Stalin's day. After much prayer, we're told by the team, one member finally got up the courage to go to the warehouse and ask the officials if the Bibles were still there, and sure enough, they were. And then the mission agency asked if the Bibles could be removed and distributed again to the people of Stavropol, and amazingly, the answer was yes. And so the next day, a mission team returned with a truck, several Russian people as well, to help load the Bibles, and one helper was a young man, she writes, skeptical, hostile, agnostic, collegian, come only for a day's wage. And as they were loading Bibles, one team member noticed that the young man had disappeared. And eventually, they found him in a corner of the, war, of the warehouse, and he was crying. We told he had slipped away, hoping to quietly take a, a Bible for himself. She writes, what he found shook him to the core. Because the inside page of the Bible he picked up had the handwritten signature of his own grandmother. It had been her personal Bible. Out of the thousands of Bibles still left in that warehouse, he stole the one belonging to his grandmother, a woman persecuted for her faith all her life. And as he looked down the opening pages, he realized that she had been praying for her children, grandchildren, future descendants. And then and there, gripped with reality. God is real. His grandmother had no doubt prayed for him and her city. And the discovery of the Bible was only a glimpse into the spiritual realm and this young man was in the process of being transformed by the very Bible that his grandmother had held so dear. You see, as the Bible teaches, God's word does not return void. And so there's hope for that one who has been grounded in truth, but for whatever reason at this particular time is not walking with the Lord. 
as we consider the importance of knowing God's word. You note the meditation here being described in 97. The threefold comparisons being made in 98 through 100. But now thirdly, the discipline being established in 101 and 102. Notice what he has to say here. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. For you see, the one who wants to disciple others is the one who has been disciplined internally to disciple externally. And what we find here is that God is using a physical illustration to teach a spiritual truth. Timothy Munyon tells, while living in Florida, I had a lot of friends who were cleaning rooms at a nationally known inn located directly on the white thousands sands of the Gulf of Mexico. We were putting our way through college. They spent their work breaks running barefoot in the sand. Problem was the inn required all employees to wear shoes. I noticed the employees responded in one of two ways. The majority thought the rule restricted their freedom. The rooms had shag carpeting, delightful to bare toes and feet. A few steps away lay the beach. To them, the rule to wear shoes was nothing more than employer harassment. But you see, a minority of the employees looked at the rule differently. Sometimes late-night parties would produce small broken pieces of glass. And occasionally, a, a stick pin would be found hidden in the deep shag piles. And some knew the pain that could be injected into the foot. We're not following what the word had to say. And now the psalmist looks at all those who've made their way to Babylon and had to walk the entire way and says, I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules for you have taught me. And what I want to be able to say at this point is that when you embrace God's word, that sense of protection offers you a sense of direction. You see, when you embrace God's word, that sense of protection gives you a sense of direction. And you can keep on keeping on. And you're on to the final, the four observations. Because fourth, I just want to note with you the joy here that's being expressed. It's as if now he, he's got to put an exclamation point to what he's encountering with the scriptures. How sweet are your words to my taste. Sweeter than honey to my mouth. Well, the Israelites, they value the land uh, filled with honey. And so he could, he almost sensed now uh, that longing for home. And through your precepts, I get understanding. And therefore, I hate every 
false way. And then you read that and you nod your head when you ponder Jacob Deshazer's story. One who participated in Jimmy Doolittle's raid over Japan in April of 42, 1942. He was captured and imprisoned by the Japanese and in the coming months underwent both physical and emotional punishment. Watched friends go before firing squads. Others die of starvation. We're told that though he was an atheist, the days and weeks of pain and deprivation made him consider issues of life and death. And so he asked his jailer if he could get a Bible and was met with derision, the writer tells us. But the Shazar persisted, and more than a year later, a god finally brought him a Bible saying, three weeks, three weeks, and then I'd take it away. Sure enough, in three weeks, the god returned and claimed the Bible. But those three weeks changed his life. When DeShazar eventually returned to Japan in 1948, this time it was with his wife and son, and they returned as missionaries. Because the word of God, the word of God, even when he was exiled from home, was not exiled from his heart. It broke in, and he found home with Jesus. Have you? Let's stand together. And so, Father, we thank you. My word, we could even just take the first five books of the Older Testament, find gospel on each and every page. We're the promised Messiah, combined with the power of our sovereign God, converge. And the same is true for us here. That no matter where we're at, no matter how hard it is, when the power of God is combined with the promise of God, found ultimately in Jesus Christ, we experience the presence of God in our lives. And for this, we give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.